0: I hope you're all well and that you've had a lovely week. If you haven't yet left a five-star rating, now is your moment and your good deed for the week could be recommending Desert Island Dishes to your friends and colleagues. I love bringing it to you every week and your reviews really do make the world of difference. In other exciting news, this episode of Desert Island Dishes is brought to you in partnership with Penguin Random House and one of their latest cookbooks, Green by Ellie Pear full of no-fuss vegetarian and vegan recipes, from tray bakes to one-pot dishes, lots of recipes you can make in less than 20 minutes, but then also sumptuous brunches and things you can make when you've got friends coming over. Basically, all bases covered, all delicious, and also the kind of recipes where you don't even really notice that they're vegetarian and vegan, they just look and taste great. So Green is definitely a cookbook to add to the shopping list. Thank you very much to Penguin Random House. That's all from me. Now here is today's episode. My guest today is Marcus Waring. Marcus is one of the most respected and acclaimed chefs working in Britain today. His contribution to British food and his passion for nurturing the next generation of cookery talent has earned him both respect and accolades. His career began at the age of 18 and he now has a restaurant empire to his name, two Michelin stars, seven cookbooks and a successful television career with his role of judge on MasterChef The Professionals. When asked to describe his style of cooking, Marcus has said, it's not British cuisine, it's not French cuisine, it's Marcus cuisine. (laughs) Welcome, Marcus. Thank
1: you. Nice to meet you.
0: (laughs) Such a pleasure to have you on Desert Island Dishes. How do you think you're going to get on on the Desert Island?
1: I don't know, I think I find it pretty tough, I've yeah. to be honest with you. Yeah. I think I love sort of creature comforts around me that I've I've we we all have. And you do sometimes think about Desert Island. What would you do? How would you live? How would you survive? And you just don't know.
0: No. Are Uh, you a practical kind of person? Would you sort of be building huts and rafts, or would you just be waiting to be rescued?
1: I don't know. I think (laughs) I would. I think I would try and do things. I don't. I think I try to make my life as easy as possible and make the most of the time there. So never really relying upon someone to come and rescue me. So sitting waiting because I think that'll just drive me insane. So I think what I would do is try and make the most of every minute that I'm there and try and make life as comfortable as possible yeah. rather than waiting for something like the rain to arrive. Yeah,
0: that sounds good. A focus on like building that suntan.
1: Yeah. Well, yes.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so Marcus, you were raised in the northwest of England and had a childhood in which you were always surrounded by food in mm-hmm. one way or another. So let's talk about the first as island dish. And that's the dish that most reminds you of your childhood.
1: That was for me, probably the easiest one of all, because it was the one thing that revolved around my family business or my, my father's business, which was fruit and potatoes. So every single Sunday there was always a roast dinner. Every Sunday. I, I just don't remember Sundays without a roast dinner. It was, it was our family meal. It was the time that we as a family only ever sat around the table with my dad. Okay. He, he was he was always working uh, Monday to Sunday and he even used to go to work on the Sundays as well. So uh, coming home in the evening um, was was a sort of a treat that dad was home because normally his hours were six o'clock in the morning till up to midnight at night every day.
0: Yeah, so quite a special
1: time. Yeah, it was, yeah. And mum cooked, and we all sort of chipped in wherever we could. But it was always a roast. And it was it was that, that that reminds me of my childhood more than any other meal at any other time in my life, because I remember it from the youngest of ages all the way up to the day that I left. Yeah, that's uh, so nice. Is yeah.
0: it a tradition you've carried on with your children?
1: Not, not, not as such, no, because I think our children are very much more adventurous, and I think that we are time-conscious at the moment. We're not as... Things have changed. You know, when I was growing up in the 70s and 80s, mostly 70s as a young boy, there wasn't a great deal to do. There was no phone, iPhone distractions, no social media. There was only four channels on the TV. In fact, three when I started. So cooking a meal and being in the kitchen and the garden was was just, that was it. Or you went to the park, kick a football around. And so I think today, you have a look at the way we live at the moment. I think we're a little bit time poor, yeah. uh, which stops us from having that roast every Sunday because it just doesn't work for us.
0: Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? Do you remember when you used to turn on the TV in the morning and it was just that black and white screen with that sort of circle in the yeah. middle?
1: And then at night time, <laughs> you would get that clown in the middle of your TV yeah. screen and you just think, oh, my God, when you look back on it, you know, our kids, you talk about these times and they just don't believe you that no. the TV would stop at a, at, a, at 11 or 11.30 at night or midnight and that was it
0: yeah and it really wasn't that long ago things have changed so much so you describe your dad as your biggest inspiration in sort of more ways than one he was a fruit and vegetable merchant and from the age of 11 you'd go and help him with his work after you finished school for the day tell us a bit about Mm. that time
1: that was my time of wanting to do something different to everyone else around me which was the school that i was in Uh, and i found school and great that was fine and I found, But I, I, I didn't have any interests in school at all. So I did my thing and I, I used to finish. And we used to finish, I think, 3, 3.30. We used to walk home. It used to take about ten fifteen minutes to walk home. And there was nothing to do. So I just used to get on my bike and just go up to my father's warehouse and just cycle up there. We were very free in those days. And no mum, you know, if I'd said, oh, I'm just going to the warehouse, it was fine. There was no checking or nothing. I just got my bike and off I went. <laughs> there was never any concerns. And ten fifteen minutes later, I was there. And then I'd, I'd gone from school. Which no young kid really enjoys to home, which was nothing much going on on the television, to go into a warehouse with forklift trucks and wagons and men and tea and biscuits and fun and dirty jokes and stupid things like that, but a lot of an amazing atmosphere with a lot of interesting characters, and I got hooked on it.
0: That's amazing. Yeah. And also such an interesting combination of probably learning and being exposed to the importance of ingredients. Imagine,
1: yes. Yep. But
0: also he was working incredibly hard. So. Didn't?
1: Yeah. And I didn't know it at the time. I just saw it as a job. I saw my my dad and his brother and his sister and the workmen buying produce, sorting it out, storing it, looking after it, uh, selling it on, going to markets, Liverpool markets, Preston markets, going to all the farms in the Northwest to pick up produce. And then decanting it and breaking it down and serving it to the schools school meals uh, corner shops restaurants, hotels so it's a big thing going on um, but it was hard graft and hard work but what what I did learn was the the collecting of basic ingredients, the storing of them, the looking after them, the taking care of them, the repackaging of them, the precision of my father's work, albeit when I look back on it, it was very simple, very straightforward, and looked very basic. Actually, it was the massive foundation of the, be- the beginning of my cookery life. Yeah. So, when I went into catering, I had five, six, seven years of produce experience before any other chef around me at catering college. Yeah. So, I was very much in front of other people before I'd even put on a chef jacket. Yeah, it's like
0: the most amazing yeah. foundation. Yeah. You say by the time you were 13 or 14, you decided be- to become a chef. So I'm excited to hear your second Desert Island dish. And that's the first dish that you learned to cook.
1: Yes, that happened to be um, my elder sister, Diane. Um, I remember she did a home economics course at school. and um, We were all four of us went to uh, the same school. So my elder sister, Diane. He's nine years older than me. My sister, my brother Brian, seven years, and my sister Tracy, six years. So there's a big gap between me and my my and my my younger sister. But I always remember my elder sister going because I remember the basket that she used to take her ingredients to school. That I was wondered why she was taking food and like packet of flour and butter and eggs in, a, in, in like this, this sort of basket that you saw re- Little Red Riding Hood have it was literally <laughs> like that uh, with a cloth over the top anyway didn't think anything of it and then eventually I ended up going to, obviously to the same school sometime later and I remember there was kitchens in a classroom and I was in, like oh I didn't realise that there was a, a, call, a, a, a class that, that Home Economics we had and so I, I ended up doing it and I don't know whether or not my mum made me do it or whether or not it was part of my year group I just can't remember but then I remember going to school with this basket. I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> got your own. And it was really embarrassing because it was <laughs> it was a very girly thing to have. And I, I was so embarrassed and I didn't want to do it. Uh, but I had the ingredients of um, a pineapple upside down cake in it. Ooh. And that was the very first thing that I made at, at, at school.
0: There are worse things.
1: I know. Well, it was interesting because the, the lesson wasn't about a pineapple upside down cake. The lesson was about the creamy method okay. of cake making. Yeah. So it basically was line a tin with butter Put four pineapple rings out of a tin in, in it, put four cherries in the center of the hole, make a cake mix, which was the creaming method, very straightforward step by step by the teacher. put it in top put it on top of the of the of the pineapples, bake it for twenty thirty minutes, turn it out, and it was pineapple upside down. I was like, Wow, it is really cool
0: it 's magic It's
1: upside down, and it <laughs> felt like magic, and it was my eyes wide open to for me, what was the beginning of my career.
0: Yeah. Well, anyone who might have been sort of sniggering when you're walking around with your basket certainly uh, wasn't when you had a cake. I was very popular but, yeah. when I went home.
1: <laughs> very popular. In fact, I don't even think it made it at home uh, complete.
0: No, I bet it didn't. So you said that you feel very lucky to have found what you wanted to do at such a young age. What was it that drew you to cooking and actually wanting to be a, a chef?
1: My, my dad felt that... I was going to go into my family business, the family business, it felt like the only thing that was there in front of me. And I loved it. I really enjoyed the time. I was the one out of my brothers and sisters that spent more time there than anyone else. And it, it, it was all I could see, but my brother was a cook Yeah. So Brian uh, was uh, uh, sort of left home, still in Southport, worked in restaurants and hotels. And so while I was still at school working with my dad, I also got a, a late night Saturday night job and a Sunday job in the hotel and restaurant with him. Okay. So I started doing a little bit of cookery, doing weddings and buffets. And it was really exciting because I knew, I knew the kitchen because I used to deliver to it as a delivery boy in my holidays and in, on my nights uh, after school. But I, mostly weekends and school holidays, I would deliver into hotels and restaurants. So I, I just really loved these characters in, the, in that particular kitchen. And so I, I went in there and I started doing a little bit of cookery. And, and, you know, I just felt like I really, really enjoyed it. So my dad said, you're not going to come into the family business. Because he saw it changing, but not for the good. Okay, um, and he said, "This is not really going to last long." Um, so I really think you need to consider a future in something else.
0: Also, that's quite selfless of him, isn't mm. it? Because you were like yeah. his heir.
1: To yeah, and it, and, for, and it was passed down from his father, who passed away while he, my granddad, while he was incredibly young. So my dad actually took on the family business at twenty-one. Oh wow! Yeah, I know. Uh, and he was one of the eldest. So he was the sort of the senior one of the family who who then had to carry that. That 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 company for amazing man yeah, incredible, and very courageous to do that, but what changed my father 's business was the biggest part of his company was school meals, uh, school meals turned into canteens of beef burgers and chips and baked beans and anything from the freezer and a tin, and fresh produce wasn 't purchased anymore, so you can see what was a, a kitchen full of dinner ladies cooking lunch for school kids became a kitchen with two or three people, two or three people just opening tins and deep fat frying things. Oh, no, and, I so that, and I remember that I remember that change. It was, the, it was the Margaret Thatcher era and the cutbacks on the, the councils to reduce numbers. And a bit like we've been going through for the ourselves in recession and now in Brexit and so on and so on. And there's nothing that's happened in the 70s and 80s that's not happening right now. Mm. But kids were served a different type of food. And I saw that transition while I was at school Trust me, it was a blessing. It made my father retire because his business collapsed and it pushed me into catering. So I wouldn't be here now talking to you.
0: Every cloud has a silver lining. (laughs) At that point in time, what did the idea of being a chef look like? Sort of what was the dream at
1: that point? There wasn't one. There was no dream. Mm -hmm. There was be a cook, work hard, enjoy it. There was never a dream beyond the job I had. And it's very interesting because people often think that I had and I was always going to, I was always sort of expected to end up being own your own restaurant do xyz because maybe that's your parents you know dreaming about what you could be and it was never in my head i was never a dreamer i was just always a go up get out and do it and i was doing the job i was doing the the weird thing about it was that it was one job opened the door to another job to another job i only ever wrote my cv once really and that was the, the i've never done it ever since and so i never applied for a job one job just opened into another and the only CV i ever wrote was to get into catering college and i had no nothing really on it it was a piece of paper (laughs) you know getting to the savoy and coming to london was you know a a gentleman opened the door to me for me to meet anton edelman (laughs) And then Anton to the to, to Gavroche and, and so on and so on and so on. So That's
0: incredible. Mm. In in your own words, life changed for you when you went to catering college at mm. the age of sixteen because you went from being what you say, you you were the bottom of the class at school to suddenly being the top of the class. That must have been really exciting to have found something you were so good at.
1: I found something that I was good at in the kitchen and I found a lot of practical work that interest interested me. Um so I think at school my parents my dad was always at work and my mom never really paid much attention. She was running the house with four kids and cooking. And it was a different era in the 70s. So we didn't really get homework.
0: You know? Oh, really? No. Don't, don't tell your children that. No, I don't
1: remember ever remember having homework. Um, <laughs> maybe
0: you're just blocking it out.
1: Maybe I, just, so maybe I just never did it.
0: Maybe, yeah.
1: <laughs> um, but I feel what I felt was that when I went to Cajun College, albeit my, my father and my brother sort of, I was always going to go to a kitchen but it was never expected to go to college. I just wanted to go to work. Okay. And they made me go and do a full-time course, which was like, oh my God, I can't believe you're making me do this. I just absolutely fell in love with it. The kitchen felt very natural and I enjoyed that. And I'd had an advantage over everyone else because I'd already been in kitchens. And the the classroom, albeit wasn't the easiest place for me, but what I did find in the kitchen was that an amazing interest in what was being taught. And so that intrigued me to work very, very hard. So from being a mediocre school pupil, I, I ended up, becoming top of the class in all my subjects and then winning awards and being standing out in the kitchen. And it made me feel that this was the job for me. So you just get in life as a young person, you just get one little bit of hope or one little bit of that's I'm really good at as a young person go and get it focus on it and really make the most of it yeah because you never really know what can happen
0: yeah that's true and it's sort of moments like that when you go somewhere like a catering college if you haven't enjoyed school and you suddenly realize oh this is kind of how I was maybe meant to be feeling that but I've now found my place and it's so exciting
1: and I do wish that somebody had picked something up at school I, I, I always end up talking about going back to it and the reason why I look at it now I think what i missed at school i picked up on along the way anyway yeah. so i don't as an adult i don't feel like i am any worse off than anyone else because i'm not and i can do everything anyone my age can do yeah and now that I look at my own children and and i see the importance of school and, and reading books and enjoying new things outside of this warm focus that you have in life i think to be the most important thing for me so where where i am a little bit different is i i i read one, maybe two books a year. And that's only when I'm on holiday. Um, I don't, I'm not over-interested in the internet. I don't shop on the internet personally. I'd I'd rather not have an iPhone if I didn't have to have one for social media and use it as a phone. I'm not interested in the next gadget, the next modern technology. I'm old school. But I see my family around me completely embracing everything of the future. So I end up embracing it, but a lot slower than everybody else.
0: They're dragging you and
1: yeah. kicking. And, and so I, because I had no real interest outside of cookery, it be- I became very one dimension and very focused on just cookery, which I think has driven me to the position that I'm in today.
0: Yeah. Amazing. Okay, let's pause there and talk about the third Desert Island dish. Mm. That's the best dish you've ever eaten.
1: This was tough because I've eaten so many. And to pick out a dish... Whether it's some of my wife's most amazing cookery, to my nan's a custard tart, to my mum's baking, to family meals, my own family, my, you know, so many different occasions that I've had great food and so many kitchens that I've been in. But there was, a, there was one time in my life where I had the biggest, oh my goodness me, I didn't see that coming dish and I a period of my training I'd worked in Paris I've worked at a restaurant called Guy Savoir um, which was a three-star Michelin restaurant in Paris in the 16th arrondissement I worked there for a year um, it was amazing I left I carried on my career and some time afterwards I went back with my wife I think she was my still my girlfriend at the time um, we went back and to, to eat at, at Guy Savoir's restaurant and it was just amazing because I've been in the kitchen and I've never been in the front of house so we sat down and had this meal and this dish arrived and we ordered a tasting menu. This dish arrived and it was this beautiful bowl had a plate on it. And it was just sort of like, a, it looked like a stack of plates and it, it had this quite high appearance to it. Anyway, it was a piece of fish. It had a poached egg on top and it was covered in black truffle. Beautiful. So the aroma of the fish, the egg and the truffle started eating it. Of course you break the egg and the egg yolk just runs over the fish into the bowl and in the bowl, there was like these little, small little holes all the way through it, and it was just the design of the plate. And so I ate the, we both ate the fish and the truffle. And you just think, my God, the fish was heavenly, beautiful turbot. And it's like, you know, truffle as a young person, as a chef, was just like heaven on earth. And the waiter came over, we'd finished, he took the cutlery away, and then another waiter come with these sort of like tong things and and put it into the holes of the dish, and then he lifted the lid the dish off another dish and underneath it was this layer of beautiful fish soup (gasps) that had the yolk the egg yolk that had dripped through dripped and put these dots so like 50 40 30 little dots of egg yolk had dripped onto the top of this beautiful soup that was sitting underneath warm
0: oh my goodness
1: waiting for us to then have our next course which was right there and we didn't know it was there that's amazing then they came along with more black truffle and shaved that on top oh my god. so for me it was the beautifully cooked fish the amazing aroma of truffle but the surprise of the s- soup underneath the dish was on another level it took me like that was my oh my god moment of food
0: Oh, it's so fun that food can do that, isn't yeah. it?
1: Oh, Never forget that.
0: No, that sounds absolutely amazing. You did mention your nan's custard tart. That yeah. I'm wondering, is that the custard
1: tart that you cooked for the Queen? That's the one. Yeah.
0: Oh, nan. Yeah. That's
1: so cool. It's a combination of three people, isn't it? My mum's my, my mum, my dad's mum and my mum. They all made it and they all did different things. Um, my mum struggled to make it with keeping the pastry crisp my nan used to my dad's mom used to make it just in an earthenware bowl with no cut with no pastry Ooh. and my other nan used to grandma used to make it slightly thin with pastry and probably did it as very well actually did it the best out of the three but everyone's was very memorable and then We used to see egg custard tarts in the cake shop up around the corner and we used to buy them because an egg custard tart was only ever seen in the Northwest as an individual little tart, but they used to make them as large ones or in a bowl. Then what happened was I, I, I did the Great British Menu Cookery Show and I developed the recipe and I changed it to be the perfect egg custard tart with the perfect pastry my way. Their recipes twisted for a professional kitchen. And uh, yeah, I ended up eventually winning that show and cooked it for the Queen's 80th birthday. So cool. And met her along the way. Did you? Yes, I did.
0: Did she yeah. say she liked it?
1: She did. She, she was quite did scary you? for a very... Well, she was 80 and she was a little lady. She's a gran. She's everything. and But then she's the Queen of England. And yeah. you're thinking, oh my God. <laughs>
0: <laughs> quite scary. Yeah, pretty scary. So at the age of 18, your dad put you on a train to London when you got your job at the Savoy Hotel. I mean, that's a pretty incredible first job, isn't it? And also, was that the first time that you'd been to London?
1: It's the first time anyone in my family or even any of my cousins, uh, anyone had ever left Southport. uh, I was the first one. That's so brave. And I'm the youngest of four. So it it was very odd. And maybe, who knows? Did I look for that? I'm not sure. I was spotted in a competition and I was asked to come and meet Anton. And I suppose, as they say, the rest is history. But my dad, my dad, take him into Liverpool, Lime Street, basically setting setting the, the the path out to go and do what you want to do. We both didn't know where we were going to go or where it was going. Um, it was very difficult. It was hard for me. I was a homeboy. I loved my family life. I loved the warehouse. I loved everything about Southport. But yet there was no prospects for me as the chef that I wanted to be in Southport. I yeah. wanted more than the village and the town um, and the Northwest. And that's not me being selfish. That was just, I felt that there was something bigger out there that I wanted to go and discover. Didn't know what it was. Yeah. And I had no clue <laughs> yeah, what, where, okay. where it was ending, but that as you say that was okay, but I always had a family standing behind me supporting me through through the process.
0: Yeah. And it was a kitchen that had over 100 chefs. Mm. Was it how you thought? I mean, I know you'd been in kitchens before, but was it what you expected?
1: It was more. It was bigger and scarier than I expected, but I had the energy, I had the the focus. Um, I had the workability because my dad taught me to work hard. And I could have worked anyone in that kitchen under the table. Yeah. That's the key. That was my get my success, that putting a, a 12, 16-hour day in was water for ducks back yeah. for me.
0: No big deal. No
1: big deal. I got on with it. And so I embraced it. albeit I didn't enjoy London. I didn't enjoy my time here at the beginning. I found London cold, quiet, dark, rainy, miserable. Has it changed? Scary. <laughs> um, it has changed. But I think that's because I've changed. Yeah. <laughs> I think London's always been the same. I just didn't see it the way I see it today.
0: Yeah. No, I can definitely see how it appeared like that. It's Very hard. I mean, in your words, you describe um, how you lived at that time. You say you lived almost like a monk. Yeah. It was just, you were working and going home in the evening and sleeping and that was it. Yeah. But do you think it's sort of, I mean, I guess it is, it's that level of focus that has got you to where you are today.
1: It was no different to how I lived at home. I didn't know any different. I didn't want to go to pubs. I didn't want to go out socializing. I was too tired. My time off was relaxation, going to the gym, but most importantly, washing my whites and ironing them. I had to wash them, I had to oh, iron them. Oh, did you?
0: Yeah. They didn't do that at the Savoy. At
1: the Savoy, they did, but my other restaurants that I worked in, they okay. didn't. So there was very much you have to really take care of yourself. But I was very proud of my uniform. So I treated it like, a bit like a soldier's uniform. I wanted it to be immaculate. So when I ironed and starched it, I did it well. My mum taught us how to iron. My mum taught us how to do everything cook, iron, look after yourself, clean, be tidy. She was a stickler for hygiene.
0: I feel like I already know the answer to this question, but of that time, obviously, you were just starting out. Mm. Do you have any cooking disasters that happened then? I mean, you don't strike me as the kind of person that would ever make a mistake
1: oh, if, at home or at work. At work, at work, I think yes. I, you learn by your mistakes. Yeah, um, I've burnt things. I've cut myself. I've, I've had disasters through 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 many different services. I've overcooked things. Of, oh God, yeah. I mean. Some of the things you know, you have to. You, you have, have to. to anyway. You know, Brilliant. making a, a making a fish terrine at the Savoy for a thousand people in uh, not thousand five hundred people for a banquet was a hard thing to do. You know, so you've got like fifty like tree molds full of fish, full of fish mousse, lobster, spinach, caviar running through it. Then you've got to make it, build it up, cook it. It takes days and days and days to prepare. And then when you finally cook them, turn them out, the sous chef comes in and tells you that they're all split. (gasps) No, no. You are putting them in the bin because they're they're, they're all grainy. (gasps) You've just thrown days of work away and you have to do them all again.
0: Oh my goodness. That's giving me heart. If you ever want your heart to drop (laughs) into
1: your shoes, that does it for you. Yeah. And they didn't talk to you in a pleasant way. No,
0: I can imagine it, it was, wasn't like, it was oh, Marcus, aggressive. what have you done?
1: It was, you're on your own, get on with it.
0: And have there been sacrifices along the way? Because from the outside, you do seem to have it all. You've got this incredibly successful career. You're a really hands-on dad and it sound, from the sounds of it, you're sort of able to cheer along the sidelines of your children's matches and things like that. But what's the secret? How have you done this?
1: Taking... One thing at a time. I started off as a single man. I met a young woman. We went out together for seven and a half years. We got married. We slowly started, again, to have children, buy a house, buy a flat, buy a small house, buy a slightly bigger house, and gradually take one step at a time. But the reason why I find time for things now is because i found time for nothing in the build-up to where i suppose i am today
0: okay so it wasn't like that
1: in the early so so, no there was a massive level of selfishness so when when we the kids were all babies and jane just generally really took care of absolutely everything and i was i was leaving the house at six six thirty and i was coming home at midnight beyond like my dad six days a week and but that was a deal that jane and i had before we got married jane always knew what i was going to do and she always knew, knew what type of chef and person she was marrying and I always tried to say to Jane, if we ever have a family and all goes well and everyone's happy and healthy, please don't ask me to change, because it's the only way I know. And so, so we had that pack agreement. We and it, we still we still stand by it today. So, on the basis of Jane still appreciating that my my request actually makes me give more back to the family mm. because there's a level of freedom that she understands and has given me to be a cook a dad a restaurateur, uh and all the other things that i do so it's a team effort yeah. you know what i do if we ever have a problem as a family we all five of us sit around the table and we talk
0: oh well that's we have a chat yeah
1: you know we're not perfect we work hard at it but when we're all inside this house it's just mum, dad jake arch jesse family of five yeah cat dog two cats <laughs> i used to have two goldfish but oh, they all okay. died <laughs> oh no
0: <laughs> i mean basically what i'm hearing is jane's the best and we, yeah. we all need a jane that's right <laughs> let's talk about the fourth desert island dish and that's your favorite sandwich
1: mm. well i've thought a lot about this I, <laughs> I love sandwiches but i just think if i had to have one last sandwich i think it just you can laugh at this it would just be egg and cress
0: oh, i would never laugh at egg
1: that. <laughs> cress Salad cream,
0: ooh, salad cream, black
1: pepper twisted into it, and sliced white bread.
0: Mm, yeah,
1: no fancy bread, no sourdoughs, mm. just a great white loaf. No,
0: it's all it's, You know, it's always about the white slice. I'm totally yeah. with you. It makes but I used, take, yeah,
1: and I used to take, yeah, and I take it on whenever it was on a school trip. It was always, always my go-to sandwich. I, I, I remember it because it was the sandwiches that Mum would make for me. whenever whenever i ever went anywhere and so i just i just we just love them yeah great marcus i'm sold best sandwich
0: so after working in paris new york amsterdam and working under people such as albert Roux and gordon ramsay you opened your first restaurant i think at the age of just 24 and then seven months later you went on to win your first michelin star do you remember that moment that you found out
1: i do i was 25 actually okay um I think it started at 24, but by the time I'd opened it, I was 25. Okay. Yes, six seven months later, I got a call from Gordon. He in exactly exactly the same time, he won two stars, and I won my my first star. And do you know, the, the weirdest thing about it was it never even crossed my mind that I was actually even trying to win a Michelin star. Really? No. It, 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 no, it was opening a restaurant was more enjoyable than thinking that I've got to go and do this and. I had no pressure on myself to, to to deliver any accolades. The pressure of opening a restaurant and cooking good food under a huge amount of intensity at that particular time. I was 25. I had no man management skills. I didn't know how to look after people. I didn't know how to talk to staff. I didn't know how to look after my front of house. So I was too busy dealing with all of that until one day you get a phone call and you're told that you've won a massive accolade. Um, and I, the one thing I do remember was 24 hours later having almost sort of died when he told me, was I just felt that someone had just put a very, very, very heavy bag on my back. I was going to... F- for the first time in my life, I felt that I was carrying a, a burden mm. slash... Bagged, so much
0: expectation.
1: Uh, expectation, yeah.
0: That's so interesting. So the, the pressure wasn't beforehand because you were kind no, of... No, was naive. Yeah. And then after you get it, I guess you're then... Like, oh. Yeah, you've got to live up to that.
1: But it was that training that I'd been through and the precision of the cookery... The perfection of the, every single dish that left the kitchen that I wanted to be right was the reason as to why I won that accolade. My job now was to continue maintaining that.
0: I've been 24, 25. It's so young. Like, I can't imagine opening a restaurant at that age. If you were to go back and do it again, is there anything that you would do differently now? Obviously, you know so much more.
1: I think I'd never changed the past. I think I've, I've enjoyed the, 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 the life lesson.
0: Yeah. Would you recommend if a 25-year-old came to you now and said they wanted to open a restaurant? I'd tell them not to do it. Okay.
1: <laughs> I'd look at their CV. I would look at their career. And one of the things I would look at quite deeply is, have they got any a degree? Because I believe to be a good chef, you need to be a good restaurateur, And I believe that you need to have certain skills in your bag, apart from just cookery. When I was growing up, you just needed to be a good cook. Today, you need to know how to handle social media, Marketing. You need to be able to use a computer to the uh, in in every way. You need to be able to do spreadsheets, email correctly. You need to understand P and L balance sheet if you're going to run a business.
0: Yeah, well, yeah, because you're a business man, that's right. not
1: just a just right. So it's get as much get as much experience under your belt as possible, and try and learn from as many people as you possibly can. And that's not just in the kitchen; that's across uh, a broad scope of life and business. You know, yeah. and that's what I did as, but I I learned it along the way. On the job okay and maybe life was different pre uh social media because you weren't under the spotlight you yeah it was different it was no one was watching you no one was taking pictures and posting them on the social media or networks you people would journalists were the people the strongest and the most powerful people who used to come and critique your restaurants and people used to buy newspapers for whatever reason but when food critics were writing in the national papers it was a huge thing for us mm. and it was scary when they wrote, now every single person that sits at your table is writing about you.
0: Yeah, that's so true. My yeah. God. So, so it's, actually, it's, it's
1: actually weakened the power of a food critic in some sense because everybody's critiquing you. Different platforms are writing about you. People are writing and taking pictures, but then I can do the same to them. Yeah. I can do whatever I like to and talk about whatever any of my experiences like people can do with me. So I think the key is learn to embrace the yeah. modern world. And
0: I guess as long as you're doing a really good job, mm. you've got nothing to be afraid of. Like in a way...
1: In social media world, doesn't matter how good you do a job, someone will always criticize yeah, you. that's true. You will you never, can... ever keep everyone happy. It
0: can be the juiciest peach, but there's always going to be someone that doesn't like peaches.
1: Yeah, it's too, too, too runny. It's too, <laughs> too soft. It's too yeah. this. It's too right.
0: <laughs> Let's talk about the fifth desert island dish. And that's the dish you eat the most often.
1: That's got to be my wife's curries. Ooh. Oh. What's her secret? I've trained her well.
0: Oh. <laughs> <And> I, <laughs> we won't I, tell I, her. Use that. <laughs> I do say that from time
1: to time, and people look, do give have that reaction. <laughs> what? What did you say? <laughs> the, what I mean by that is, is when you live with a chef, whether you, whether it's a, a husband or a wife, vice versa, whichever way around, a chef will always get involved in what someone else is doing in a home. Yeah. And so, as the years have gone by, Jane and I have cooked together. She's watched me cook. I've watched her cook, and we've always I've always critiqued the way people do things in a kitchen. As not 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 to critique it because I want to, but just because I can tell you how to make it better. Actually I can tell you how to make your life better and how you can improve. And so over the years that's really sort of sort of got into jane 's DNA of cookery, and so as the years have gone by she 's been more experimental she will she will use the skills that i've asked uh, the skills that i 've shown her, and then And it 's all about the little tidbits, the little things that you don 't know as as, yeah. as as people cooking the chefs know so much about, and that 's what i 've given Jane so what she does do with Curries, is she'll take a good cookery book, she will follow a recipe to the letter she'll measure everything out, and she'll follow it and with all the information that i've given her. Of the, the do's and the don'ts you end up with great food mm-hmm. and it's always curry night with the family that i enjoy the most because all the families around curry nights great food indian cuisine is amazing and it's different and so when it's done well and the spices are cooked well i love it because i don't weigh ingredients and i think until you understand spices you need to follow recipes to the tea yeah i think if i had to cook a, a, a curry off the top of my head i think probably jane would probably cook a better one because i've never trained in the world of spice but i will not follow a recipe
0: okay yeah i'm, I'm, an, I'm
1: an arrogant cook <laughs> so i'll try and go off piste and so by going off piste i'll end up with something and it will taste great but then i also appreciate the value of other people's recipes of which jane will follow to the tea.
0: Marcus, I think we've got the makings of a new TV series. You and Jane do a cook-off and see who's is better. (laughs) So you've done amazing things in your career, from Michelin stars, TV, cookbooks, restaurants, and everything in between. But I really wanted to ask you about the consulting work that you did for the film Burnt with Mm, Bradley Cooper. How did that come about?
1: I was emailed by a gentleman called Stephen Knight. Many, many, many years ago, and wanted to he basically his email was, I'm writing a, a screenplay for a movie about a chef. Can I come and see you? And he'd obviously googled some chefs and he went to meet various people. I had a coffee with him and we just hit it off talking about my life and the world that I live in, talking about the Marco, Gordon, Albert, Robichon, Ducasse, and everything. And we went through and we met up many times and he interviewed me um, pretty much like you're doing, and we just talked and talked and talked. And he just thought, this has never really come to anything. And it never really did. And then two, two, three years later, one day, it was a phone call. And it was, it was I can't remember who it's from. And it was, we, you remember the script that we went through? You remember Stephen Knight? Yeah, he's PA, touch base with me. The movie's been made. I was like, whoa, what? Really? So they came to see me. And so the first question you ask is, who's in the movie? Yeah, of course. And I was just thinking, it, whatever, whatever. Who's going to, who are they going to say? And it was Bradley Cooper Sienna Miller, Emma Thompson. Uh, there's so many amazing actors. I thought, oh, and Uma Thurman. I was like, oh my God, I'm in.
0: Yeah, <laughs> where <laughs> know, I signed. <laughs> you, know,
1: you know, it was like i played such a role in the information of this movie and the storytelling of it. I think Stephen and I, you know, Really hit it off together, and obviously it then got adapted to be an interesting movie, and Hollywood gets involved, and it, and it, and it happened. And working with them, those guys, pe- people often ask me, were they good cooks? It was funny about when you when you work with an actor, they ask you lots of questions, they watch you do your work, and then they basically do you, they copy you. Yeah. It's not because they're good cooks; it's because they're good actors. Yeah, so- they know how to listen, they know how to watch, and then they interpret that. So is Bradley a good cook? I have no idea. But what I do know is he's very good at copying me. Yeah. Or copying a chef. Also,
0: Sienna Miller. She did. She was cooking basically yes. the whole way through, wasn't
1: she? She she had the, the biggest role of cookery of all. And actually, to, to be fair, she was the one that really embraced. She used to, she actually came back into my kitchen and did services with us. Did she? Yeah. She oh my god, your chefs
0: must. She have loved. She,
1: them. she learned how to fillet <laughs> fish. She cooked fish on the stove. She was really. I want to try and master this basting and this cookery. And she was, she just really just went for the went for the role and I was really impressed with her on that one it was yeah amazing
0: well so for anyone who doesn't know it's the story of a sort of once top chef who's down on his luck preparing for a career comeback and aiming for his third Michelin star I mean it, yeah it did turn out to be such a great film yeah it was a good film and your role was to make everything as realistic as possible which must have been difficult at times because I imagine you started filming like really early in the morning and the scene was like a Friday night service or
1: and something. that you just 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 hit the nail on the head i I remember walking on set one day and the director said we're now doing a saturday night service and we're in the middle of hell's kitchen the kitchen was spotless (laughs) i was like what what am i gonna do and i literally had to transform there was no makeup making all the guys look sweaty i literally had to dirty them up dirty the stoves i had to turn everything on I actually had to do the one thing I hated doing, which was be sloppy. (laughs) I had to make them and it looked like it was in the middle. So I had to put, you had to set everything up. You had to set the scene, the pots, the pans, the kitchen porters, get food cooking. And it was really interesting. And and I, watching the art directors and the camera, one camera shot the whole movie. One camera shot the whole movie. So every shot or every part of the movie was shot over and over again at many, many angles. Oh, wow! And so watching the way they made a movie and cutting it together, and the art direction, and the the way the director, you know, stood behind the screen with his his this his little TV monitor, and he was like, "Right, action!" and then cut, and it's like, "Action!" and cut. Let do it again, Bradley. He's like, "My God!" It's like it's what you expect it to be. It is what you see you know, movie being made behind the scenes. So exciting. Yeah,
0: I found a quote where you said, the mundane monotonous of action cut, action cut takes its toll. And I think after a while, they all started to look tired and miserable and aggressive. And that's when you start to see the chef come out of them. Yeah,
1: it's true.
0: <laughs> but it was really accurate. Because
1: there was no fresh air coming <laughs> through the kitchen and the cooker was full on. They built a, a proper cooker. It was a full on French bonnet cooker. And it was massive, and it was immaculate. And you turn that on full, and you're in there for a few hours. Close all the doors. Trust me, it doesn't take long before everyone gets a bit ratty. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and so, so, so the cut, stop, start, stop, start, actually turned everybody into aggressive cooks, and yeah. and sort of tension grew because the director was just making everyone do it over and over again. And maybe that was his intention.
0: Yeah, maybe.
1: And and it worked. <laughs>
0: Yeah. Also, I read a bit where you said that at one point you had to sort of show Bradley. It was when I think he was having... Tantrum. A, yeah, he was having a tantrum and they wanted you to show him yeah. how that would look. And you said you kind of had to dig quite deep because you're not yeah. like that now. But I, maybe you've had times in the past when that is I how you
1: I you I, I did this scene and Bradley turned to me and said, can you just show me what a chef does when a kitchen is falling on its knees in the middle of a service. So I basically just started at the, on the pass, imagined myself when I was back at my days at Lorangere and Petrus, of what my Saturday nights were like. And I went round every section and and pulled the service to pieces, pulled the cooks to pieces, pulled their, their cooking, their laziness, their sloppiness to pieces, raising my voice and, and getting in people's faces and pointing out the obvious of, mistakes all around me i was not looking for any good anywhere i was looking for all the bad I went around the kitchen twice at the top of my voice at points <laughs> and he literally followed me around the whole kitchen i then left him he said right he said it? Is that it i said that's it that's what a kitchen's like when we're on our knees i then went behind the scenes stood behind the director he then went off and did what i just did even i the, the hair on the back of my neck stood up and i just thought i want to be in that kitchen yeah. I, I love it when chefs are on that in that position of on the edge and feeling that the food is just everything to you. The yeah. passion oozing out, and he captured it in one take.
0: How amazing! It was amazing. Oh, amazing. I want to go back and watch that. Amazing scene now. to watch. Yeah. Amazing
1: to watch, and it was amazing to be part of it. But not only that, it's the brilliant. What 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 appealed to me? What I felt was that's acting. No matter what you say about people, maybe you like him as an actor or whatever, whatever. At the end of the day, when you see in, tr- in, in real life, you then appreciate what actors have to go through to, to be really good at their, at their craft.
0: Yes, yeah, such a skill. Yeah. That, I mean, that sounds incredible. Let's pause there and talk about the Sixth Desert island I just say one thing, though, by the way? Yes.
1: Anyway. Uh, with Bradley Cooper, he he had just he started making the burnt movie just off the back of him finishing um, American Sniper. Oh, yes. So he was all pumped. Oh. <laughs> so he was all soldier-esque. He
0: was perfect. he <laughs> no, was perfect timing to
1: be a chef straight after American Sniper. So he was in this Sergeant Major role uh, of his voice was extraordinarily loud and... and, and uh, confrontational yeah that uh, worked out so, so well. so it's perfect timing
0: yeah well that's really interesting yeah that they we're filmed in order. order right mm. let's pause there and talk about the sixth desert island dish and that's your go-to dinner party dish
1: yes i've cooked quite a few dinner parties never ever thought i would but i as life's gone on my children in you know, actually our, our dinner party guests have always been related to our children's uh, schooling and okay. the families, all the people we've met along the way, you know, and it's really interesting. It's really interesting when you live in London, you don't know your neighbours, you don't know people in the village and local people. You don't. It's very different. You 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 find your friends through networking of events that you go to or schooling, and so the dinner parties I I, I have are all based around my kids' schools and other kids' families, and it was really interesting. Lots of people from many many different walks of life, but there's one dish that I serve that they all love and adore. And that is just absolute foolproof uh, for me. And it's an apple tartar
0: Oh, yes.
1: Baked, caramelized, hot, pastry, crunchy, with clotted cream. It's all done beforehand. And all I have to do at a dinner party is just put it in the oven for 15 minutes and turn it out onto a plate.
0: That's a good tip. So you make yours oh, yes. ahead of time. Oh, you have to. Yeah, because sometimes you go to a dinner party and you'll see someone starting to caramelize no, their apples. No. You're like, oh no. No, even make them the day before and <laughs> okay. they last.
1: Yes. Um, but when you put an apple tartar tan or a pear tartar tan, you reheat it back in the oven. It just gets better. It actually gets better as it gets okay. a little bit older. Okay, that's
0: a top tip yeah. from Marcus Waring. On Desert Island Dishes, we've got a cookbook corner. So what is your sort of most treasured cookbook?
1: Oh, I've got, I've got so many cookbooks. I think... The one cookbook that I think has to be my first practical cookery, and it was, it, we, we used, it was called The PC. It was the first book I was ever given as a, as a chef, and it was given to me by the college that I went to, Southport Catering College. It was the basic of basics, but the, the reason why I like it the most is because it's the starting point of my cookery career, okay. and it's what I consider to be the foundation mm, what because it? it teaches you basic cookery skills. Chopping, cooking, all the basic sources, all the basic cookings. So a book called The Practical Cookery for me would be my number one cookbook. Okay,
0: that's a very good, a very good option. And I've never done this before on Desert Island Dishes, but the other day I got an email from a 12-year-old listener called Orla. And I, um, I think she might be the youngest listener of Desert Island Dishes. And I asked her if she had a question for you, Marcus. Okay. And Orla would like to know, and I think this is an excellent question, what is, in your opinion, the best biscuit for dunking in tea?
1: <laughs> wow oh wow um oh i know i think it's got to be a digestive that's
0: it's got to be option. it's got we a going digestive. plain chocolate plain
1: plain no plain because okay. okay. if i do chocolate they have to be cold
0: yeah oh yeah, keep yeah it it in so. the fridge.
1: get in the fridge nice and cold so i think a digestive biscuit it's that that and rich tea the problem i have with rich tea is they 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 break and they end up breaking into your tea and ruining your cup of tea so yeah, at least you get the dig- like icebergs yeah of rich tea. so digestive for me that's a good answer
0: we're on to the final seventh desert island dish what is the last dish you would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island
1: i think i'd have a, a roast rib of beef cooked on the bone nice and slowly rare in the middle served with triple cooked chips <laughs> a collection of vegetables and Bernay sauce.
0: Oh, my goodness. And a
1: good bottle of Bordeaux.
0: That sounds amazing. Would you have a pudding?
1: Yeah, that apple tart Okay, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Why
0: not? Mark is wearing those Your Desert Island Dishes. Thank you. So there we have it. Another delicious day of Desert Island Dishes. Don't forget, you can find me on Instagram at Margie Nomura. You can sign up for the newsletter at desertislanddishes.co. If you're listening and you haven't yet left a review, please do, as it really does make a world of difference and gives the show a little boost. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to visit the website DesertIslandDishes.co for lots of different recipes and a whole host of kitchen tips and tricks. Thank you so
1: much. Bye.